Three years ago, returning from Brussels, the Prime Minister David Cameron made good on the promise he had made over Europe. I will go to Parliament and propose that the British people decide our future in Europe through an in-out referendum on Thursday the 23rd of June. The choice is in your hands. He had been pushed into this position because of Conservative infighting over Europe that stretched back as far as 1988 and Margaret Thatcher's Bruges speech that resisted a vision of a closer Europe. We have not successfully rolled back the frontiers of the state in Britain, only to see them reimposed at a European level, with a European superstate exercising a new dominance from Brussels. Followed in the early 1990s, when her successor, John Major, signed the Maastricht Treaty, which furthered European integration. There is, however, as we know, a majority of this House in favour of ratifying the Maastricht Treaty. But John Major's hopes of lancing the poison were dashed when eight Eurosceptic MPs rebelled. They lost the whip and then effectively held the party to ransom because Major had such a tiny majority. Sound familiar? But also familiar, a highly critical right-wing press hostile to Europe. The Sun's Up Yours Dolores headline in 1990 was one key moment, as were a string of anti-Europe stories from a 24-year-old Brussels correspondent for the Daily Telegraph. His name? Boris Johnson. I had a sort of save-get, you you still have save-get keys, a save-get kind of intro, which was, Britain stood alone last night as... And then I would fill in whatever it was as Europe proceeded with plans to abolish the prawn cocktail flavour crisp or, 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 or whatever, or, or abolish the curved cucumber. Since then, Conservative leaders in particular have defined themselves by their attitude to Europe. This culminated in Cameron's offer of a referendum before the 2015 election, a promise that he never thought he'd have to make good on. But then he did and he found that two of his senior cabinet ministers, Michael Gove and Boris Johnson, declared for leave. We vote leave on June the 23rd. We can take back control of £350 million a week and spend on our priorities here in this country, including on the National Health Service. We can take back control of our immigration system. The £350 million bus figure was only one in a campaign dogged by claim and counterclaim, in which journalists, often struggling to maintain balance, did not scrutinise as much as they could, and even when they did, found themselves derided. I think the people in this country have had enough of experts with uh, organisations from acronyms saying... The people of this country have had enough of experts. From organisations with acronyms saying that they know what is best and getting it consistently wrong. 15,000 EU referendum-related articles were published online across 20 national outlets during the official campaign. The economy was the most covered issue, but coverage of immigration more than tripled over the course of the campaign. Despite many newspapers taking a pro-leave stance, there was still a shock in the early hours of June 24, 2016, when the result was announced. The total number of votes cast in favour of Remain was 16,141,241. The total number of votes cast in favour of Leave was 17,410,000. 742. 
This means that the UK has voted to leave the European Union. David Cameron resigned the same day, and his successor, Theresa May, found herself having to try to deal with a divided party and a divided country, and somehow deliver a solution that satisfied everyone. Brexit means Brexit. The campaign was fought, the vote was held, turnout was high, and the public gave their verdict. In the years of chaos and compromise that have followed, how effectively have journalists been able to cover the story? Have they focused on the colorful characters who have dominated the airwaves, such as Jacob Rees-Mogg? I think a coup is when you use illegitimate procedures to try and overturn somebody who is in office. This is working through the procedures of the Conservative Party. It is therefore entirely constitutional, and dare I say to Newsnight, coup is the wrong word. And did journalists report on the public mood or help produce it? Or simply, in a fast-running story, have even journalists lost sense of what's going on? As Chris Mason, a BBC political correspondent, once memorably put it. People like me are paid, aren't we, to have insight and foresight and hindsight about these things and to be able to project where we're going to go. To be quite honest, looking at things right now, I haven't got the foggiest idea what is going to happen in the coming weeks. Welcome to The Know How a podcast aimed at bringing academics and professionals together to dissect the pressing matters of today. I'm Dr. Glenda Cooper. And I'm Dr. Lindsay Blumel. On today's programme, we speak to three veteran journalists to discuss the shortcomings and challenges of reporting on Brexit and what influence current journalism norms of objectivity, impartiality and telling, quote, both sides of the story contribute to reporting on Brexit. Welcome to the journalism department at City University and this first live event of the Know How podcast, which has been set up to dissect some of the pressing issues of the day. So for the first live event for the Know How, there was really only one issue that we could choose. Brexit is currently dominating and has dominated the news agenda for more than three years. And yet, do we understand any more about Europe? How have journalists tried and maybe failed to cover it? Did the 2016 referendum result change the way that journalists approached this subject? And when we see the parade of white middle-aged men in suits in front of the cameras, how are we reflecting the electorate who voted in 2016 and again in 2017? And as we record this podcast in early April, maybe even voting again in 2019, watch this space. So to talk about this, we're joined by three distinguished guests. Rick Bailey, Chief Political Advisor to the BBC, Holly Watt, author and former Whitehall editor at The Telegraph, and Laura Hughes, the political correspondent at the FT, and who's just been named Young Journalist of the Year. Welcome, Rick, Holly, and Laura. Okay, so let's start by going all that way back to the referendum. Um, it has been said that journalists didn't test the claims and counterclaims in 2016 enough. Uh, coverage was adversarial rather than explanatory. Uh, what one academic called a statistical tit for tat. Uh, what do you think of that argument, Holly? Um, yeah, I mean, when you think back to what the coverage was like in 2015, 2016, I think about it, you had like these kind of 
cartoon characters almost on the leave side that were kind of seen as these sort of like almost like comedy characters like you know, Nigel Farage, Aaron Banks and they were never taken quite as seriously I think as they probably should have done because we still don't quite know what they got up to in that time period we don't quite know who they were working not for but you know alongside or you know who they were being influenced by um, you know I just I think somehow the media sort of collectively took its eye off the ball and didn't quite realise the sort of impact of what was coming down the line I mean, I think, first of all, it's important that journalism is not over-defensive about it. I think it's important we look at what we did and decide, you know, whether we did a good job or not. Um, But I also think it's important to distinguish between a failure of politics and a failure of journalism. Um, And that may well overlap a lot, and uh, perhaps part of what journalism didn't get right was identifying a failure of politics. But in the end... um, uh, if you're, politi- if you're reporting politics, you can only report what's there. Um, one of the things I found interesting is how much the audience, um, certainly from our perspective, was uh, thought that our referendum coverage before the poll was pretty good. They liked it. And that a lot of the narratives around the failure only happened afterwards. Um, and I think there's, that's got many causes. Um, some of them part of journalism, but some of them part of what's going on in politics. And I think picking that apart is what we're all trying to do at the moment. And Laura, what do you think? It's different depending on what you're looking at. So if we're looking at newspapers' coverage, it's understandable, given the freedom of press we have, that different papers took very different stances and therefore covered things in different ways. One issue in particular, the the Irish backstop that we all now know and dread to talk about, none of us really talked about. MPs are still getting briefings on what various things mean. How journalists were meant to know the complexity of everything we now know, it's not totally journalism's fault, and it's also understandable that certain newspapers chose not to scrutinise things in the way perhaps others mightn't have done. I think one of the really interesting questions is for broadcasters like the BBC, who had to be impartial, and the questions that that raised, because at the time, during the referendum, the argument was presented as very 50-50. But actually, if you take a step back, you had on the one side, the Remain side, you actually had the governor of the Bank of England, every leader of every political party, the president of the United States, every single business group. And yet, when you watched a debate on television, it was always balanced with someone representing a smaller leave campaign funded by a few individuals. So the public were presented with an equal argument, which is what the BBC had to do. And then suddenly we're being seen things you know, in a different way and there's some criticism of that. But it's different questions for different types and sections of the media, I think. I want to pick up on two things there, actually. First thing, to go back to what Holly was saying about the, the characters. And you know, if you look at the research, you'll see that Leave and Remain voices were heard equally. But the majority of the voices were politicians, and the majority of those politicians were conservative politicians. And in fact, the academic Mike Berry uh, has dubbed the, the coverage Tory story, is how he put it. So what was the effect and what continues to be the effect when coverage becomes about personalities and infighting and future leadership contests? You know, is this something that's still the case? Yeah, yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'll let you go first. <laughs> no, I think kind of it's been this massive lesson for the media, hasn't it? Of like that if you give people a platform and let them sort of spout whatever they want to say for a long time, and they're perceived as a sort of humorous, interesting, entertain yeah, their entertainment, um, people will start to listen to them, and you know that will have real consequences. And we've seen that you know increasingly right the way around the world, um, and. I think the first time for me that I realised how sort of dangerous that was was in the run-up to Brexit, that you could see it happening. And to, to come back to the um, question that Laura raised about impartiality, I mean, it's been said that impartiality is not a measure of who's able to speak, but who's able to set the agenda. Is that something you recognise in the BBC, Rick? Um, to be honest, and I have to kind of keep pinching myself to make sure I don't get too defensive about this, but there has been a huge amount of claptrap talked about this since the vote. Um, the point during the campaign was, what you have to define what impartiality means. The, the word that people often forget with impartiality is the little one that goes before it, which is due. The, the obligation for the broadcasters is due impartiality. And that means making judgments about what's appropriate in those particular circumstances. Um, and I think, I think it's fair to say, and I, I, you know, even before the referendum, about a year before, I was very conscious that uh, a, a referendum was going to be fantastically difficult for not just the BBC but all broadcasters in terms of impartiality because of its binary nature. And it's not just that referendum. You can look at almost anything which gets into a binary position and you find that impartiality is facing big challenges. And that's because people get into their trenches and they don't, uh, that normal sense of politics of being a whole range of things, um, of which a bit of this and a bit of that, and uh, you know, making sure voices aren't excluded, and all s gradually get swept aside as people sit in their own trenches. And anybody who's not in my trench is an enemy, including those people who are attempting to be impartial. So I've heard the argument a lot that we gave equal time to these two sides. We didn't give equal time, but what we couldn't do was to exclude those voices from the argument, because these were formal campaigns who had a, were part of the furniture, if you like, of the referendum. And so we couldn't start saying, well, we can't have Nigel Farage or we can't have Boris Johnson or because we don't believe what they're saying. We, we actually had to do two different jobs. One was to give them some sort of platform to allow them to communicate with the people who they wanted to vote for them. And secondly, we had to scrutinize that and hold them to account. And I think what people have forgotten is how much we did do that. We did call them out. And during the campaign, people recognized that. But it was only afterwards that people began to question, because of the result, whether that had been done effectively enough. And I think that's a fair argument. Was it done effectively enough? And, and I think, as you say, um, did we know enough to be able to ask those difficult questions about the backstop and all the rest of it? To which the answer is no, I'm sure we didn't. But then neither did the politicians. It's also the way people are receiving their, their media and how they're getting their news in a way that wasn't understood, I don't think, properly back in 2015, 2016, which all of a sudden does feel like history. And I think kind of now we all understand that social media creates these echo chambers that sort of bounce information backwards and forwards. But I don't think people had really taken on board that it didn't matter how much each individual organisation was doing sort of proper editorial judgment and giving both sides of it. If you had people then sort of selecting little bits of news, you know, taking them out of context and putting them out and echoing them at each other, just what that con the consequence of that would be. But I think it's important. I think we, sorry, we, yeah, I think we have to analyse our own, you know, it's, it's, it's quite easy for us to say, oh, well, that, that's this new environment and social media and all the rest of it, there's nothing we can do about it. Actually, I think we have to ask ourselves how we respond to that uh, at a fairly practical level. So, 
So for instance, people's understanding of impartiality in the past would be that if you watched Andrew Neil interview Jeremy Corbyn and you saw him give him a good kicking, you knew in the back of your mind that next week he would interview Theresa May and give her a similar kicking, and that's kind of what we all knew and understood. But if you only now receive it by seeing one of those, and you see uh, Andrew Neil putting what we think of as devil's advocate questions, but in a way that might sound in that microcosm as if it was his view, you have a different understanding to impartiality than what we had before. You don't care that he interviewed Theresa May in the same way because you think, actually, what she's, you know, that's what he ought to be doing because she's telling lies. Jeremy Corbyn is my hero, and therefore, when you kick him, you're kicking me. So I think that different perception of what impartiality is is something we've got to think about when we put our stuff out there to make sure, I mean, you know, show, show the workings of impartiality a bit more than we do perhaps at the moment. And that's, that's, sorry. That's yeah. that's that for years and years, people have been complaining to journalists that they've taken their comments out of context, and now journalism is kind of going, but you're taking us out of context. Right. <laughs> I think picking up on what you said about impartiality, particularly about sides, you mentioned sides, and something that our students and journalists um, around the world talk about is telling both sides of the story. And when we look at the research, it can be quite problematic, this idea of telling both sides of the story. A, it can oversimplify complex stories. It can, uh, it can, I would say, introduce extreme views and otherwise agreed upon knowledge. And it can silo people into only certain sources being heard. Um, and so when you think about telling both sides of the story, is that still relevant for today? And does that do, justice for everyone who's at the table. I, can I, I have a real campaign against the word balance. I, I loathe the word balance. Um, and I think it's completely inadequate as a description of what you're trying to do. Um, um, I used to, when I used to recruit political correspondents, my first question used to be, tell me what the difference is between balance and impartiality. And, and it's not that there's a, a perfect answer to it, but it shows whether people have thought about it enough. Um, uh, and, and as you say, balance implies there are two sides, and it implies simplicity. Impartiality is a much more um, nuanced uh, concept, which recognizes that you can have bias by omission, by leaving things out, by putting emphasis in too many places, by not being consistent. There's a whole smorgasbord, if you like, of things which contribute towards impartiality, which is much more complicated than balance. And I think the problem of uh, polarized politics which are uh, characterized by referendums, and we saw this first in Scotland before we ever got to the European referendum. When you're, when you're in that binary position, you find yourself very quickly in the place where politics is reduced to those two sides. So in reporting it, we're trying to fight that all the time, but politics itself has become both sides binary in a way that doesn't help people understand what's going on. When you approach it with measurements and talk about equal time or column space or whatever, you're, you're kind of missing the point of impartiality because there are so many other things that can contribute to it, you know, tone. You know, you can, you can have perfectly timed interviews with two different politicians, but that doesn't mean it's impartial or even balanced, if you want to use that word, because the way you approach it, the tone, the sense of the questions, contributes far more than the stopwatch ever does. And I think that's one of the problems that it, it's very easy to criticise the broadcasters, or anybody for that matter, by simply getting, getting out a slide rule and saying, well, that proves you're not, 
you know. And if I may say, that's one of the things I've found in the academic world is there is an awful lot of that goes on because the academic world wants to have measurements of things and you cannot measure impartiality. I'm not saying you ignore the numbers, it's not irrelevant, but if you think that's what a measure of impartiality is, you're, you're barely scratching the surface. I think you're probably right, and we, we, we can also be <laughs> um, forward about that. I think one thing you can measure, though, is source use and who is spoken to, who gets to contribute, um, who, not only by just the numbers, but how much they're featured, how often they're quoted, um, how much time they're allotted, and so forth. And one thing that really struck me was last November, October, the HuffPost reported that 90% of parliamentary debates on Brexit were by white men. And obviously that's in the parliamentary, but we can probably say that there are imbalanced figures as well in news coverage. And so what do you do um, if you can't measure impartiality perfectly? What can you do to things that you can actually measure like source use? What do you do to make sure that it's more inclusive, that it's not just one group of people being heard? The, the FT have introduced something where they measure how many women are being quoted in articles because I think we realized that was a problem and that was an issue and sometimes actually being a political reporter I find myself quoting more men often because they're coming out with the most outrageous <laughs> comments and quotes they, they find their way into your copy um, but there, there is an issue with that and actually within Parliament there are female MPs who have had conversations with female journalists where we've all had a discussion about the fact that there aren't enough women necessarily being quoted. One of the reasons also for that is sometimes if you're, an, uh, well, if you're living in London and you're a female MP or you're a female journalist, you have children at home, you don't go and get your quotes in the pub after work and in a way that some men can do. And so that's actually a factor as well. It's also the lifestyle, I know that sounds bizarre, but of female journalists having a slightly limited uh, pool of opportunities to speak to men uh, or women. So that that is one thing you can do, and I think news organisations can measure, you know, and, and there is feedback to journalists of you're not quoting enough women, or this, by the way, is your percentage. And sometimes it's hard if it's just, you know, Boris Johnson and it's a Tory war story, you probably have more men going on TV because they like the sound of their own voices, so they get quoted. But, yeah, there's, you, can, you can internally measure it so you're conscious of it. I mean, it was an amazing photograph of John Burko just surrounded by this group of white men sort of, you know, clearly making their point as forcefully as they possibly could. And it's just when you see visuals like that, I still find it quite sort of astonishing that that's what it looks like, a parliamentary sort of, well, not a debate, but a parliamentary sort of showdown in 2019. It's just extraordinary. I hesitate to speak on, on, on this topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, I, I mean, I think it's something BBC is very conscious of. And, but again, I think it's where you've got to really be careful about distinguishing between what's politics problem and what's journalism's problem. I mean, Westminster, you know, and I was a lobby correspondent blah, 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 years ago, uh, and my sense of Westminster is it's always at the very least 25 years culturally behind the rest of everybody else on, on everything. Um, and I certainly the BBC, and, you know, a lot of our coverage has been led. I was struck the other night on the in a news... Um, uh, a news bulletin, one of the main news bulletins being read by Rita Chattopati and then having four captions of the people who are going to bring this story who were all women. Um, and so I think, I think we've you know, done pretty, pretty well on that, not by any, um, um, simply on that's where the BBC is at the moment, I think. Um, but you cannot change, you, you cannot uh, dictate to Westminster. I used to run Question Time and I, I used to, I really did impose 
quotas to make sure that across series it was properly diverse. But it's a massive, you have a massive struggle with the political parties over that. And, you know, sometimes parties you would expect would be better on this sort of stuff really aren't. It's a, it's a real struggle at Westminster. I think our political culture is way, way behind the times. It really did, when I was a lobby correspondent, it's just, it was bizarre that each newspaper had its, like, female reporter. Like, there was one in each team. <laughs> Not so much. But, like, and then every so often, like, one would be poached by another newspaper and there'd be this kind of like, domino effect as everybody tried to make sure they had their lady on that. And you were just like, it was just so weird. You just couldn't believe that that's how it was so it, recently. It still really is the case there's normally an average of one woman per room, per newspaper. But, you know, that's that's the way you, you get more female women being quoted in articles if you employ female journalists because thinking of an example of a colleague at the Evening Standard, she did a story on Tulips Deke being pregnant at the time of a crucial Brexit vote and then a lot of women wanted to talk about that so she brought in a story that one of her male colleagues probably wouldn't have done because they might not have been talking about, I don't know, whatever they were and, and Tulip trusted her with the story. So I think if you do have more female journalists, you'll have more female sources and, and quotes just by nature of, you know, it, it, there's, um, over the coverage of the sexual harassment within the lobby, it was, it was interesting, it often felt like the female journalists were deployed to do those stories, and part of that was a lot of male journalists had some very good contacts who might unfortunately find themselves <coughs> in the crossfire, and that was a really hard moment where you had to decide, are you going to write about someone who's an incredibly useful source, or are you going to go after the story, or are you going to ask your, you know, a colleague to do it? That was a, a moment I sensed, I sensed there. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, you're now talking about something that I've read a lot about, um, talking about the Me Too movement and covering sexual harassment and so forth, and I never thought about that before, that actually these journalists probably know the, some of the people in question and, and how do you deal with that and how do you impartially um, cover that if that is ever possible. So I think, it's, yeah. It's really hard and, you know, I still work in a building with at least 20 men who I've probably accused of something along the line and they're all still MPs and you have to bump into them on a regular basis in a way that if you were a journalist writing about a dodgy I know, banking executive, you're probably not going to run, run into him when you're grabbing your lunch. It, it's a really weird environment, and I understand why a lot of people didn't want to write those stories, and particularly, you know, different lobbies. If you're a local reporter, that's really hard. And when I started off, I worked for three local papers in the lobby, so I had about 12 MPs. And if I'd written, written one of these stories, that could have knocked out half my contacts if it was one party and then I would get a reputation. And it, it's, it's, it's quite difficult. Thinking about how reporters cover stories, um, we've talked a lot about the, sort of the 2016 uh, referendum. But at the moment, times, well, even Jacob Rees-Mogg himself, you know, talked about things being bonkers. That sort of was the term that he used in Laura Koonsberg's uh, recent documentary. I mean, how on earth, as you know, as a lobby correspondent or as an editor, how do you cover Brexit at the moment? You don't sleep. <laughs> you don't eat. <laughs> you don't see your family. It's 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 been extraordinary. It's mad. I thought the Laura Coombsberg documentary really got it because she's running. She's literally running, and that's how we all feel. <laughs> Just, what is someone saying now? What are they saying next? 
everyone's exhausted. MPs are exhausted, journalists are exhausted. There's this sort of frantic air. And, and I think that can kind of rush. Well, I know for me, I'm rushing stories sometimes, and I'm not giving them the, all the attention that I might have been able to do in a normal week where you have a day to write a story. At the moment, the story is changing so rapidly that staying on top of it is really hard, and, and it's moving all the time, and it's really complicated. I mean, I just feel for, you know, the public watching the news, how you explain, well, you know, an amendment just voted in, but so now the, the government motion is, is, is not, not, not right. No, MPs are being told not to. MPs are getting confused. MPs are having briefings. It's really difficult. Um, I mean, I, I don't even know the answer to this, but for me and the F team personally, I have a really good, very calm boss, and we've divided everything up, so we've each got our little area, because it is really, really impossible. I mean, Laura Kingsburg is on the radio when you wake up at 6 a.m., and she's still going at 11 p.m., and then she's doing a, a, a podcast. I, I don't know how she's doing it. She's pretty extraordinary, but yeah, it's been it's quite difficult. But from the BBC's <laughs> perspective, when, as you say, how do you explain to the public sort of what's, what's going on in, in times that are... So I mean, Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, we can all decide whether we agree with him on lots of things, but on is it bonkers, I think it's pretty fair to say that's quite accurate. Um, I mean, just to, a sort of historical context to this. I mean, I, you know, I was a lobby correspondent in the kind of um, the, the second half of the, the Thatcher era, uh, you know, when the ERM and Maastricht and all of those sorts of things. And, and it felt then like politics was extraordinary. And you, ha you have this sense very occasionally of the lid coming off normal stuff and you see the workings of it and you see people, politicians, behaving uh, um, without the sort of discipline they normally have and that's fantastic for journalists and the story really builds and you get that sense of the workings of it um, and my sense I'm not you know on the front line with it now but my sense of it now is it's like that all the time in a completely crazy way and so how uh, how the, uh, the, the frontline journalists cope with that I really don't know I mean for us we just have to especially when we're an organization where we have many different outlets all trying to um, you know, not, not contradict each other because these stories are coming from so many different places. Um, you know, having a, a way of coordinating that and to exchange information between different uh, parts of the organisation to make sure that you're you're getting it right is phenomenally difficult. And you know, inevitably things go wrong sometimes when that happens. You know, we 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 will make lots of mistakes and we'll call things wrong sometimes. And I think you've got to be aware all the time of looking at your own output and testing it and checking it that you're you're actually you know getting it right because most of the time you know it's it's too difficult to get right i'm i'm still talking to mps and lobby journalists who are working you know full time on it and are they just exhausted and broken have lost every any perspective on it you know they kind of barely know what day of the week it is let alone what's happening in the last amendment and it's just it's you know they've all a lot of them i think got this huge sense of like responsibility towards their jobs and what they're doing and it's becoming increasingly clear that it really is going fairly catastrophically wrong on their watch and I think they're finding that very difficult to cope with really a lot of them but then at the other time you know some of them think it's a great you know trying to run for leadership so you, you just people are approaching it in different ways but it's not not all someone said of CBS back in 2016 that Trump might not be good for America but he was damn good for CBS so I just want to ask you, you know, has Brexit, has Farage, Johnson, the Tiggers, Corbyn 
been damn good for the British media, if not for the UK? Well, B BBC Parliament is getting record figures, <laughs> amazingly. <laughs> um, and I think, I think that's what's heartening from a journalistic point of view, as against perhaps a UK point of view, is that people, despite all of this and despite how difficult it is and how boring it can be, actually people do seem to be really interested in it and are trying to follow it and are trying to, you know, are hungry for information about it in a way that actually is, is not inevitable. People could have turned off from it completely and you get the kind of Brenda from Bristol, you know, idea quite a lot of when you ask people face to face, oh yes, it's awful, it's boring. Actually, that's not reflecting the figures. People really do want to understand it and know more about it. The BBC Parliament channel just had the most amazing narrators makes you feel like you're watching a sporting match. <laughs> so I find the most soothing thing when you're in Parliament at 11 o'clock at night. Um, and apparently it's getting more hits than MTV at the moment, more viewers. Right. So people are genuinely engaged, which is sometimes the last thing you want when you go out for dinner and they find out you're a political correspondent and all they want to do is talk about Brexit. I think, yes, it has, it has been good for our industry in a way, but I've, I've also, whilst I've, it's been enjoyable and extraordinary and amazing, I found it hard not writing about other things in the same way that I think MPs who were only just elected, they didn't, they didn't run for Parliament to talk about Brexit every day and get abuse 24 hours a day from constituents and people that they don't even represent. There's a real kind of bandwidth issue going on and it means that if you're trying to pitch something else, there's no room in the paper and I think that's been frustrating and that's bad for the country so yes whilst it might be exciting for me I, I, I on a very selfish level I'm not sure it's been worth it but you're right people are people are engaged with politics in a way that they never would before and I think I used to think being a political journalist was boring I really didn't want to be one and now I just think it's the most exciting job in the world and you feel like you're in a war zone. Thank you very much to Rick Bailey, Holly Watt and Laura Hughes for being our guests today. This Know How podcast was presented by Glenda Cooper and Lindsay Blumel and produced by Atina Dimitrova. You can find more episodes and live events, including our interview with Dan Balls, the chief correspondent of the Washington Post, by going to our website, blogs.city.ac.uk slash the Know How Podcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at Know How Podcast, or on Facebook, search for the Know How Podcast. Thank you again for listening. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you.